Father, thank you again for your word. Thank you, Lord, that when we know Christ as our Savior, your Holy Spirit indwells us and you teach us. Same way that you open our eyes up so that we can see the glory um, of the gospel in the face of Christ. Uh, You open our eyes up continually uh, to your word and to your truth and, and to see our hearts as we grow in our relationship with you from that point forward. And we pray that that's what you would do this morning through um, this odd scene that we come upon in the book of Daniel. Lord, I just pray that you'd bless this time. Lord, let this not be academic, but um, allow us to see our hope and your glory and our life with you through this passage. And I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. We're going to be looking at Daniel chapter 7, verses 1 through 18 this morning. I explained last week why we're not moving um, into chapter 5 yet of the book of Daniel. We're, we're jumping ahead to chapter 7. We're moving through Daniel chronologically, and that'll become really obvious uh, as we move through it um, in terms of its chronological order. If you have any questions of why Daniel didn't compile it that way, I'd be happy to talk with you about it and stuff, but I think it might put half of us to sleep this morning if we talked about it from up here. But um, on a recent uh, trip to see family um, this uh, past winter, we, did, we were all talking about um, mine and our, our extended family. We're talking about our enjoyment of a particular movie series called The Born Saga. Born Identity, the Born Supremacy, the Born Ultimatum, and the Born Legacy had come out on DVD. And so we were talking about these movies that are based on a book, but I always watch the movie. Um, and, um, and we were talking about the fact that, you know, it had been so long since we'd seen the other movies now that the Born Legacy was out that we really wanted to catch up and before we, we saw that, uh, that one. And so we decided, you know, what we should do uh, on these evenings is, is watch the third one before we see the fourth one, you know. And so we sat down that evening and watched um, the third in the uh, first three of the movies. And as we're watching it, it was catching us up and things, but we remembered we were starting to remember, like, how tied in this third movie was to the first two. And how intertwined they are. And so we're watching this and we're like, oh man, you know, you really, you have to see the first two to really be able to understand the third one. And um, I'm developing my, my parents' ability to watch a movie that I've seen before and not even realize that I've watched it until by the end of the movie. Maybe I understand some of you are there. But um, so, so... That night we decided, okay, the next two evenings we're going to have to watch one and two. And so we did that. And so by the end of the second movie, all of us were so confused because we're, we're seeing things and they're intertwined with the third movie, but we're watching something we're like, okay, has this happened yet? Or in the story, does that come in the third movie? You know, and we just have already seen that, so we know it's happened, but, but it hasn't happened in the story yet. And... You know, even further, some of them had not seen the movies at all. So the first time they see them is three, two, one, two. And they were thoroughly confused. Um, Studying Daniel's writings, 
of the end times can feel somewhat the same. It's not covered simply from beginning to end, but thematically. In fact, the book of Daniel deals with the end times as it has to do with the nation of Israel. Whereas the book of Revelation deals with the end times as it has to do with the rest of the world. We move this morning into what's called the apocalyptic literature of Daniel. Both the book of Daniel and Revelation contain the most apocalyptic literature of the Bible. And this means that they reveal what has to do with the end of humanity as we know it. Understandably, we get trends in which people are interested in what and how will be the end of things. Just to set it, the record straight, it will not be a zombie apocalypse. Okay? No, some of you are disappointed by that. But most people do associate apocalyptic literature with a sense of doom and destruction. But these are those who do not have a hope and an eternal life with God in Christ. For that reason, this type of writing should cause them concern. But it's different for us who claim the death and resurrection of Christ to account for us and provide us with a relationship with God, not based on our own righteousness, but on the righteousness of Christ that he offers for us. Followers of Christ, for us, the destruction of the world as we know it is the end of sin and the end of death. Chapters 7 through 12 of Daniel continue in the same theme of the book of Daniel, and that is that the supreme rule of God in an ungodly world. In the apocalyptic style, these chapters are full of metaphors and symbols like rich poetry. I'll be sharing Um, my interpretation of these things and these metaphors that I believe are the most sound understanding of them and, and holding to those somewhat loosely, but the eternal principles that we draw from these are what's most important. So we've discussed the four empires of the book of Daniel in chapter 2 specifically with Nebuchadnezzar's dream of a mighty statue. These empires are Babylon, Medo-Persia, Greece, and Rome, as you can see on the chart on the back of your bulletin. One aspect that we didn't cover at the time was what made these four empires so significant. The fact is, is that we know of Egyptian and and Chinese dynasties that predate the stories of Daniel. But what makes these four empires unique is that they make up the rule of the Gentiles, or the time of of the Gentiles, as scripture calls it. This is a time period when Gentile nations or empires specifically rule over the nation of Israel. And that's what makes these four empires especially important in their intersection with biblical history. So let's start walking through Daniel 7 here. As we see the four beasts of the Gentile rule, if you will. And this starts in verse 8. And I'm just going to go, I'm sorry, in verse 1. I'm just going to go ahead and read all eight verses here. It says, In the first year of Belshazzar, king of Babylon. Now this is part of what points us to why we are dealing with Daniel 7 before Daniel 5. We'll see Daniel 8 says, In the third year of Belshazzar. And then Daniel 5 
will actually take place the last, very last night of the rule of Belshazzar. So that's an indication to us of, that we're taking this chronologically. So in the first year of Belshazzar, king of Babylon, Daniel saw a dream and visions of his head as he lay in bed. Then he wrote down the dream and told the sum of the matter. Daniel declared, and now he begins in first person, I saw in my vision by night, and behold, the four winds of heaven were stirring up a great sea. And the four great beasts came up out of the sea, different from one another. The first was like a lion and had eagle's wings. Then I also, I looked, and its wings were plucked off. And it was lifted up from the ground and made, a, made to stand on two feet like a man. And the mind of a man was given to it. And behold, another beast, a second one like a bear. It was raised up on one side. It had three ribs in its mouth between its teeth, and it was told, Arise, devour much flesh. After this I looked, and behold, another like a leopard with four wings of a bird on its back, and the beast had four heads, and dominion was given to it. After this I saw in the night visions, and behold, a fourth beast, terrifying and dreadful and exceedingly strong. It had great iron teeth. It devoured and broke in pieces and stamped what was left with its feet. It was different from all the beasts that were before it. It had ten horns. I considered the horns, and behold, there came up among them another horn, a little one, before which three of the first horns were plucked up by the roots. And behold, in this horn were eyes like the eyes of a man, and a mouth speaking great things." Now, if you're sitting here thinking, J.D., I'm glad it's you who's preaching on this passage, I would be thinking that if you were up here. So we hear at the four beasts of the Gentile rule, meaning, again, Gentile rule being a time when the Gentile nations are ruling over the nation of Israel. We learn what Daniel saw came from a dream, and this dream was of he himself having several visions. Okay, so that's why it's dreams and visions. And it says, the four winds of heaven were stirring up the great sea. Throughout the Old Testament, the great sea referenced the Mediterranean Sea, which the promised land of Israel overlooked. In his vision, Daniel is transported back to the place of his childhood, overlooking the Mediterranean, the place he hadn't been in since he was 15, 14 years old. Also, the four winds are always references to the providential work of God, especially through his spirit or angels. When a sea like the Mediterranean is whipped into a frenzy by providential winds, the feeling is foreboding. The feeling of horror and anticipation of evil is warranted as Daniel sees what steps out of the tumult. Four beasts different from each other. Now, each of these beasts is a metaphor for one of the four empires of the rule of the Gentiles over Israel. We'll actually see in verse 17 that the beasts and their prospective empires are called four kings. This corresponds with the fact that each one of these empires had one dominant ruler over them. So it says, Daniel writes, the first was like a lion that had eagle's wings. And as I looked, its wings were plucked off and it was lifted up from the ground and made to stand on two feet like a man. And the mind of a man was given. 
The first of these beasts contains multiple references to the empire of Babylon and specifically to Nebuchadnezzar himself. The lion and the eagle were both um, representative of power and nobility. The prophet Jeremiah used both the lion and the eagle to reference Nebuchadnezzar specifically. The beast's wings are plucked off and he's made to stand up like a man and he's given a man's heart. Does that remind you at all of the story of Nebuchadnezzar that we looked at last week in chapter 4? Describing his humbling and in his humility he learned of the God of heaven. And he, and he submitted to the Most High. It says his reason returned to him. And, and he, the mind of a man was given back to him. So the first, there we deal with the first beast here. And moving on to the second, it says, And behold, another beast, a second one like a bear. It was raised up on one side. It had three ribs in its mouth between its teeth. And it was told, Arise, devour much flesh. I believe that the second beast is the nation of Medo-Persia, the empire of the Medo-Persians. This empire was made up of two nations that had combined in order to overtake the power of Babylon. Now, if you look here, you'll see on our map here what we, you might have become familiar with this so far. The Mediterranean Sea is here. This would be the nation of Israel with Judah. And in the green here is the reach of the Babylonian empire. But as you see in the uh, gray area here is the Median Empire. And based around the capital of Susa here would be the, the Persians. And so keeping that map in mind here, at the time that the Lord is bringing this vision to Daniel, King Cyrus of Persia has revolted against his Median overlord and actually has taken over the Median Empire and made it into the Medo-Persian Empire. The unbalanced nature of the bear is likely represents the lopsided power of the Persians over the Medes. This would make the divine direction of arise, devour much flesh, particularly frightening part of the vision. This is because at this point in history, the Persians are bearing down on Babylon. By the end of chapter 5, we'll see that the result that the Medo-Persians' ambition for conquering is that they will penetrate the seemingly impenetrable walls of the city of Babylon, and they will kill Belshazzar in the night. So if you look here, uh, what we have in the smaller square here is the map uh, that I just showed you, with the, Bab the Babylonian Empire here. But you'll see what it will expand into the green is the Persian Empire. They will stretch all the way into India, coming close to Greece, stretching across North Africa. So the, the command, arise, devour much flesh, is symbolic of the fact that the Lord had given much of this area into the Persians' hands. So the vision moves on. It says, After this I looked, and behold, another like a leopard with four wings of a bird on its back. And the beasts had four heads, and dominion was given to it. This is the empire of Greece. There's a commercial uh, on TV right now in which a, uh, a little boy suggests what will make his grandma faster. It says, maybe if you tape a cheetah to her back, right? 
and that's supposed to make her amazingly fast. More than just amazing speed, and that's what's communicated here by a leopard with four wings on its back and speed and agility. More than just amazing speed, what's also communicated here is the fact that of what the, Gre- the empire of Greece was known for and its speed and its ferocity and its agility in its military campaign. If you look on the Greek map, the map of the Greek empire, uh, it stretches out and basically took over the Persian empire. Now, you'll have different terms here, Seleucid, Ptolemaic, Antigonid. These are three of the four generals that we'll mention here. But this is the Greek empire, which basically overlaid and took over the Persian empire. But it was, it was um, quick. Alexander the Great, in his domination, began his domination in Asia Minor, right next to Greece there. And within 10 years... He had conquered all of the Persian Empire. All of this by age 32. I don't know about you, but this makes me feel like an underachiever. Notice that it says, and the beast had four heads. It was in AD 323, Alexander died at a young age, still expanding his control. And his empire was divided among his four generals. And we'll learn more about them in the coming chapters of Daniel. But Daniel writes, After this I saw in the night visions, and behold, a fourth beast, terrifying and dreadful and exceedingly strong. It had great iron teeth. It devoured and broke in pieces and stamped what was left with its feet. It was different from all the beasts that were before it. It had ten horns. Now if you notice, this fourth beast isn't described as being like any animal. It's different than that. It can only be described as being terrifying and dreadful and exceedingly strong. He goes on to describe his teeth as being like iron and devastating everything in its wake. Later in verse 19, Daniel recalls that it has bronze claws for ripping at its victims. There's a reason why these images, as I said, are especially scary for Daniel. Remember, they represent dominating empires that will rule over the people of Israel in the centuries to come. And it's widely believed, and I agree with this view, that this beast represents the Roman Empire. The beast's ten horns can represent multiplied strength, which would be five times the number of a normal animal with horns, strength strength always being represented by horns, or or horns always representing strength, that is. The the, The Roman Empire had 12 Caesars, but two of them only reigned for a matter of months. So these ten horns could easily also represent the ten rulers of the Roman Empire. The devouring, breaking, and stamping nature of the Roman Empire is shown in its history. The Romans expected to dominate and assimilate into their culture any peoples that they conquered. They demanded worship of Caesar, taxes for Roman efforts, and zero resistance or face retribution. As if it wasn't bizarre enough, an eleventh horn arises and cops an attitude. It says, I considered the horns, and behold, there came up among them another horn, a little horn, before which three of the first horns were plucked up by the roots. And behold, in this horn were eyes like the eyes of a man, 
and the mouth speaking great things. We're going to be taking next week's sermon and talk and focus on this 11th horn of Daniel's vision and the contrast that he is to Christ. I'll tell you now that we, he will, is known as the Antichrist. And we'll see that he's used by Satan to try to completely wrench the world from God's control. And we'll come to see why he is the Antichrist, the opposite of everything that Christ represents. Here we see in this vision that he's noted for his intelligence, having eyes like a man. He's boastful and arrogant. We'll see in verse 25 that he blasphemously speaks against the Most High with his boasting. So Daniel picks up another vision. And this, though, is of the court of God at the end of time. He says, the court of the ancient of days. We'll see in verses 9 through 12. As I looked, thrones were placed, and the Ancient of Days took his seat. His clothing was white as snow, and the hair of his head like pure wool. His throne was fiery flames, its wheels of burning fire. A stream of fire issued and came out from before him. A thousand thousands served him, and ten thousand times ten thousand stood before him. The court sat in judgment. And the books were open. The courtroom is made up of God and his angelic attendants. You know, being called ancient, we sometimes associate that with, with frailty or senility. Or, um, but the name ancient of days points to his eternal wisdom as the just judge of heaven and earth. His wisdom is also pointed to by his hair described as being white. His white clothing signifies his righteousness. The fire represents his power in judgment. It's described here that he's served by over a million angelic beings. It appears that an innumerable multitude of people are standing before him. This seems to be describing the final judgment described in Revelation 20 verse 12 where it says, And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and the books were opened. Then another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books, according to what had been done. But coming back to Daniel here, the little horn, as we, as we said, is the coming Antichrist. Daniel starts to hear a clamor back down on earth. It says, I looked then because of the sound of the great words that the horn was speaking. And as I looked, the beast was killed and its body destroyed and given over to be burned with fire. As for the rest of the beasts, their dominion was taken away, but their lives were prolonged for a season and a time. So I picture this sound coming from the earth, and Daniel kind of turning his head, something still going on down here, to the racket coming out of this little horn. At this point, the whole hideous beast, which represents the Roman Empire, is killed. I picture what I've seen in, in some kids' movies. You know, when a, a character is threatening and then kind of cut off in mid-sentence, he can be like, I'll get you. You're nothing. I'm the greatest. I'm going to, you know, and he's dead. All he was was all bark and no bite when it came to this ancient of days. And the rest of those watching are shown just how tough he is. The previous empires assimilated 
into the next empire that was coming. But the Roman Empire, we see that it's different because it faces divine judgment and it's wiped away. This will bring an end to the rule of Gentile nations over the people of Israel. Luke describes the end of the time of the Gentiles in this way, in Luke 21, verses 24 through 27. And picking up here, it's describing what it will be like for Israel. It says, they will fall by the edge of the sword and be led captive among all the nations. And Jerusalem will be trampled underfoot by the Gentiles until the time of the Gentiles are fulfilled. And there will be signs in sun and moon and stars and on the earth distress of nations in perplexity because of the roaring of the seas and the waves. People fainting with fear and with foreboding and with the coming of the world and of what is coming on the world. Again, this is apocalyptic style of literature. For the powers of the heavens will be shaken and then they will see the Son of Man coming in a cloud with power and great glory. Interestingly, this coming of the Son of Man is where Daniel 7's next vision takes him. And we see this in the dominion of the Son of Man in verses 13 through 14. It says, I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like the Son, like a Son of Man. And he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom and all, that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away and his kingdom, one that shall not be destroyed. Now, Daniel's vision is a sort of installation ceremony. Of, one of, of a being that's described as being like a son of man. I want us to pause here just to talk about this term son of man as it had been used in biblical history. Up to this point in biblical history, the title son of man was common, but it had a limited meaning. The term son of man described people or humankind in order to distinguish them from heavenly beings. In Ezekiel alone, This term is used over 90 times referring to the prophet Ezekiel as son of man or the son of man. God did this to distinguish himself from the prophet Ezekiel. But here in Daniel, the term is still used to distinguish this individual as being like a mere man. So as distinguish him from the ancient of days. But the further description signals to Daniel that this being is certainly a member of the Godhead, a member of the Trinity as well. It may not seem like it to us, but the description of riding on the clouds is a description of God alone in Scripture. Psalm 104 uh, verse 3. Now there's other passages besides the two we're going to look at here. But Psalm 104 verse 3 says, He lays the beams of his chamber on the waters. He makes the clouds his chariot. He rides on the wings of the wind. Isaiah 19.1 describes God in this way. Behold, the Lord is riding on a swift cloud and comes to Egypt. And the idols of Egypt will tremble at his presence. And the heart of the Egyptians will melt within them. For Daniel, this would be a new combination of God himself with this term, 
son of man. For us, we know that the, we know the God-man to be Jesus Christ, the Savior of the world. We'll certainly here be revisiting the importance of the Son of Man as Jesus in one of our eternal principles here this morning. But he goes on and says, And to him was given dominion and glory and the kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. This, his dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom, one that shall not be destroyed. The beastly empires are gone, especially the fourth beast with its, its blasphemous boasting and arrogance. Now this one, this son of man, is presented before God, the Ancient of Days, as the rightful ruler of the earth. The purpose is that all inhabitants of the earth should serve this son of man. The timetable of his dominion is everlasting. The condition of his kingdom is indestructible. We're reading of a vision of the future event of one who's predicted in chapter 2, if you remember. He's the stone that would crush the statue of the Gentile empires and grow to cover the whole earth. He's the one that Nebuchadnezzar gave testimony to after the Lord gave him back his reasoning mind in chapter 4. And he said in verse 34, I blessed the Most High and praised and honored him who lives forever. For his dominion is an everlasting dominion and his kingdom endures from generation to generation were the words of Nebuchadnezzar. But as I mentioned, we'll come back to this son of man and this ancient of days. Let's just wrap up our walking through Daniel here with the interpretation by an angel in verses 15 through 18. He says, As for me, Daniel, my spirit within me was anxious, and the visions of my head alarmed me. I approached one of those who stood there and asked him and con- the truth concerning all this. So he told me and made known to me the interpretation of things. These four great beasts are four kings who shall rise out of the earth. But the saints of the Most High shall receive the kingdom and possess the kingdom forever and ever. Daniel was still alarmed and anxious. It's most likely, again, because he sees Israel's future of these ascending Gentile dominations. He approaches one of the angels and he confirms for him that that these beasts are indeed the four dominant nations or kings. And he makes this statement that the saints of the Most High will receive the kingdom and possess the kingdom forever and ever. A saint is anyone who has accepted God's path of having a relationship with him through Jesus Christ. We as saints are set apart by God to receive the kingdom as God's people. This means that God's people will remain in the end as beneficiaries of his rule. Now Daniel wouldn't have had the church in mind in his thoughts, but we as the body of Christ are certainly included here. Daniel would have recognized that what we are seeing in the far future event had been promised centuries before. It had been promised in multiple covenants, one of which was to David, King David. In 2 Samuel 
7 verse 16, we read that, Daniel, that God promised to David, and your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. Meaning that a descendant of David would sit on his throne for forever, that being the coming Messiah that Daniel was anticipating. For Daniel, the vision was of the day when the son of David, as now the son of man, as God himself, would finally reign forever. That's what it meant for Daniel. What does it mean for us? I would put it this way. Amidst the intimidating aggression of worldly powers, God will crush the opposition and deliver his people. Amidst the intimidating aggression of worldly powers, God will crush the opposition and deliver his people. We see this in our first of our eternal principles. God is the king of the beasts. Daniel wrote, if you recall, as I looked, thrones were placed and the ancient of days took his seat. Continues, the court sat in judgment and the books were open. I looked then because of the sound of the great words that the horn was speaking. And as I looked, the beast was killed and its body destroyed and given over to be burned with fire. The experience of the great king Nebuchadnezzar being made into the lowliest of men was to teach that God is in control from chapter 4. Our passage today teaches this, but in its ultimate extremes. Next week, as I mentioned, we'll talk about the work of the Antichrist as the purest form of the work of our enemy, Satan. We'll look at how he desires to lead billions of people to be a force for evil. The fact is, is, we would be numbered among them. We are sinners, but we're saved by grace if we have received Christ as our Savior. And I hope that this study causes you to feel grateful to be counted on God's side. And we're called to share one fellow sinner to another. That we don't have to be a pawn of the enemy. We don't have to be tossed back and forth by worldly powers. And we have a short amount of time to choose to join the Son of Man, Jesus Christ, in his forever dominion. Evil seems to have free reign in our culture. It seems to be growing in our government. We've experienced 200 years of a nation that was founded on biblical principles. And the fact is, there's just no other free world to sail to. But we should live like Christ could return today and plan and fight for what's right as if we know he'll return in a hundred years. But we still experience far less evil and persecution than believers in places that are persecuted for following Christ. Let them be a testimony of God's victory that is far more worth joining than any world trend. We're simply beginning to experience what they have experienced. This is what it's like to be when lost sinners 
outnumber saved sinners, especially in places of power. But any human power we should see from this passage rises by God's design. He's ultimately Lord over it, and it will not escape his final judgment for how it reigns. God is the king of the beasts. Second principle we see here is that Jesus Christ reigns supreme. Daniel said that with the clouds of heaven he saw there came one like the Son of Man, and he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. From Daniel forward, this term, the Son of Man, became synonymous with the Messiah. And it was tweaked. Their previous idea that, that, um, that it was tweaked to combine both a human deliverer and God himself, one that rides on the clouds. It was described the final eternal ruler who would bring end, an end to evil forever. I want to take these last minutes to explain how it is that this final ruler is Jesus Christ of the New Testament. The Son of Man was a regular name used to describe Jesus in the Gospels. In fact, in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, it's Jesus' favorite name for himself. In warning his disciples of the cost of following him, he says in Matthew 8.20, Foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. In Mark 8, we find a discussion between Jesus and his disciples, beginning in verse 29. And it says, he he asked them, but who do you say that I am? Peter answered him, you are the Christ. And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed. And after three days, rise again. Peter knew that he was speaking about himself because Peter takes him aside and says, Not you, Lord. During his trial before the Jewish leaders, his claim of this title and its implications is obvious. In Mark 14, starting in verse 61, it says, He remained silent and made no answer. Again, the high priest asked him, Are you the Christ, the Son of the Blessed? And Jesus said, I am. And you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. The high priest knew what he was claiming. He tore his robes and accused him of blasphemy. The Jesus that is our Savior is the Son of Man who will conquer our greatest foe. The call to us in this passage is to remain faithful to him in spite of the appearances or the circumstances or the consequences. To remain faithful to him in spite of the appearances or the circumstances or the consequences. Uh, One of my favorite singer-songwriters is Andrew Peterson. He has a song called um, Come Back Soon. In it, he describes our longing for Christ 
to finally deliver us, setting all things as they should be. And I just want to share a few lines. It might be too poetic, um, but in it, this song, Come Back Soon, he, just, he tries to describe the angst, the frustration, the, the longing that we feel, not being able to see what's going on, not be able to clearly understand what is going on in God's courtroom, what is God's plan, only working off of the words that we have from the scriptures and putting our faith in that, but wanting for life to finally come back to the way that it was meant to be when death and sin didn't reign. He says, if nature is red in tooth and in claw, that it seems to me that she's an outlaw. Because every death is a question mark at the end of the book of a beating heart. And the answer is scrawled in the silent dark, on the dome of the sky in a billion stars. But we cannot read these angel tongues. And we cannot stare at the burning sun. And we cannot sing with these broken lungs. So we kick in the womb and we beg to be born. Deliver us. Deliver us, O oh Lord. This is what our deliverance will look like. What Revelation 1-7 says, Behold, he is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him, and all the tribes of the earth will wail on account of him. Even so, amen, he says. So I'm going to pray and have the worship team come on up and lead us in a couple more songs here. Father, I'm torn. Because even though I know that I should agree <clears throat> and say, come Lord Jesus, Maranatha, amen, come. Um, I think of those that I love and I care for that don't know you, uh, that their time will be up. And so, Lord, I pray that we would look for your coming, but we would also look to our friends and our family for signs of the work of your Holy Spirit, that we would put your truth before them, that they would know that we follow you and that they would be able to watch our lives and see the difference. I pray that there would be a difference. Lord, these are the eternal extremes of your reign. Father, we thank you so much that you will put down every empire, that you will put down every rebellious one eventually that stands against you and that you will lift up those who place their hope in Christ. Lord, I pray that we would be a light of this to those around us. Lord, I just pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.